Good afternoon. My name is Amaralus Lugo de Fabritz, and I am the Master Instructor of Russian at Howard University's Department of Folk Languages and Cultures in Washington, D.C. And I am proud to direct the only comprehensive Russian program at a historically Black university, our Russian minor program, where we work with students in both language, literature, culture, um, history, political science. Um, I am incredibly pleased to be moderating this event with the Kennan Institute as part of its Black History Month programming. Through this programming, we aim to amplify the voices and expressions of African Americans and Black people more broadly within the context of Russian and Eurasian studies in order to improve American understanding of this region. And we want to thank you all for joining us for our Facebook Live discussion titled Pathways to Success, Russia, Race, and Careers in Public Service. And today we'll be joined by Anna Makanju, public policy and legal expert at Facebook, who has a very fascinating career journey through Russian and Eurasian studies. And also we will be hearing from Lanitra Berger, uh, Senior Director in the Office of Fellowships at George Mason University on the other end of the DMV area. Uh, about her work helping underrepresented groups and communities gain access to education opportunities and careers in public service. Together, we hope to help illuminate potential pathways to success for people hoping to make their way through these types of careers. Now, throughout the program, if you have questions for our guests, you can submit them via email, and that would be Canon, that's K-E-N-N-A-N, Canon at wilsoncenter.org, or you can comment directly on the Facebook live stream. Please include your name and affiliation when sending questions. And if you're tuning in, you can also use this hashtag, hashtag BHM at Kennan. Now, I would like to introduce our two speakers for today, Anna Makanju um, and Lanitra Berger. Anna Makanju will start off today's discussion. Anna Makanju is a public policy and legal expert working on tech regulation at Facebook. Anna spent eight years in the Obama administration, where she was the special policy advisor for Europe and Eurasia to then Vice President Biden, senior policy advisor to Ambassador Samantha Power at the United States Mission to the United Nations, and she was the director for Russia and national um, for Russia at the National Security Council and the Chief of Staff for European and NATO policy in the office of the Secretary of Defense. She has also taught at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Anna received her law degree from Stanford University and she also has a wide ranging and international career in law. Anna was born and spent her childhood in the Soviet Union before immigrating into the United States. Lanitra Berger is the Senior Director of the Office of Fellowships in the Office of Undergraduate Education at George Mason University. Lanitra is an award-winning scholar, educator, and social justice advocate who has spent over 15 years working towards making higher education accessible to low-income, first-generation, and minority students, particularly with a focus on international education. Lanitra is the author of Exploring Education Abroad, a guide for racial and ethnic minority participants, uh, published by NAFSA in 2016. 
and she's also the editor of Social Justice and International Education, Research Practice and Perspectives, also published by NAFSA in 2020. Lanitra received her MA and PhD in Art History from Duke University and a bachelor's degree in Art History and International Relations from Stanford University. So we're going to let Anna start and then we'll have Lanitra uh, start. Um, when I was a graduate student at University of Washington, one of our uh, Dominican priests there was happy to say that God draws straight with crooked lines. So we're going to hear about how do we get from where we start to where they end. So Anna, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, thanks for the introduction. I'm really delighted to be here. So as Cynthia mentioned, I was born in the former USSR in a city that was um, then known as Leningrad, is now St. Petersburg. My mother um, came to Leningrad from Ukraine and my father was a Nigerian student who was studying in Russia. And the reason he was there was because the USSR at the time um, wanted to attract students from Africa and Latin America, partially in the hopes that they would bring communism back um, to their own countries, but also the Soviet government was trying to show that it was tolerant and inclusive in contrast with the segregation and discrimination of the United States. Um, of course, these students faced tremendous challenges, but that was the idea. So I grew up uh, you know, a bit in Nigeria, but primarily in Russia. And when my parents separated, we moved from country to country before ultimately I ended up in high school in Texas where uh, being black, poor, and an immigrant who liked to stay home and do math made me incredibly popular. Um, not really. So I didn't apply to college um, until the last minute in part because my, my family was still fairly recent immigrants and we really didn't know enough about the system. So um, I learned about Western Washington University from a friend. It was the only place I applied to. And um, I ended up really enjoying my experience. Although for the first couple of years, um, I did not distinguish myself academically because I was working at Burger King till 2 a.m. to pay for uh, my tuition. Uh, back then it was actually possible to pay an in-state tuition by working at Burger King. Of course, now it's probably not. But in any event, um, I slept through all of my classes. So it wasn't until the last couple of years when I got a grant that allowed me to go down to part-time work um, that I was really able to pick things up and focus on my studies and do well. Um, my mom died when I, um, right towards the end of college. So after I graduated, I actually spent about three years waiting tables and taking care of my little sister. And I chose law school in part because of my sister's um, terrible experiences with the criminal justice system and feeling completely helpless. Um, so I really thought I was going to be a criminal lawyer. But when I came to law school, I read a book about genocides in the 20th century written by Samantha Power, and it really inspired me. And so after law school, I started working at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which was an international court that at the time was um, prosecuting the former president of Yugoslavia for war crimes and for genocide. And I also worked in, in the International Criminal Court um, against a terrorist group called a, uh, on a prosecution against a terrorist group called the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda. But these cases take years and years and years, and they take years to even bring to trial. So as a young lawyer, I thought, I just don't have the patience. So I ended up um, coming back to the US clerking and spending time at a law firm until I got really um, obsessed with the candidacy of Barack Obama, who was running for president in 2007. And I took a leave of absence from my law firm first to volunteer and eventually to join the campaign. And um, 
went to, uh, genuinely to my surprise, Barack Obama did win the presidency and of course like incredible delight. Um, I, I thought I was just going back to my law firm but I did put my name in to the transition team of the president and I got a call asking if I would be interested in interviewing for a job at the Pentagon. Now, um, my entire you know, Russian family thought I was insane, uh, as did a lot of my colleagues, because I was giving up a promising legal career um, to join government and to take you know, a substantial pay cut. But one of the things that allowed me to do that was a fellowship I got when I was in law school called the Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowship, which paid for a huge chunk of my uh, law school. So it meant that I was able to take that pay cut and to enter government, and it was uh, it was a great decision. I spent eight years in progressively more senior roles, um, doing foreign policy and national security, and you know, loving uh, almost every second of it. Uh, of course, in 2016, uh, I left uh, when Donald Trump was elected. I left government, and I tried to think where could I apply the kinds of skills that I learned working on this huge organization on these very global issues. And that's why I ended up with tech, because that's the only comparable um, thing, the, uh, the place where you can work on policy that influences um, if, you know, things all around the globe and um, really just shapes a lot of how people live today. So that's how I ended up in my role at Facebook. And you know, uh, it's great to be here with you. Look forward to the conversation. Thank you, Anna. And now, Lanitra, your turn. Thank you so much for the invitation um, to speak today. And I'm so thrilled to, to hear your story, Anna, and to talk about this really important subject. Um, Anna is actually the type of student that I love working with at George Mason University. Um, most of the students that I work with are very curious and interested in different geographical regions and Russia is still a really popular region that students are interested in, but they take very non-traditional paths um, to get to those, those, those pathways and careers. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about how there are lots of benefits to, to not taking the straight and, and narrow path. Um, I also ended up in my position um, in a very serendipitous way. Um, but as I've reflected over my um, evolution and how I came to this role, um, even though I'm not a specifically an area scholar in Russia, um, uh, my interest in Russia has been um, a, a consistent theme in my life since I was a young child. Um, I was very young um, for the miracle on ice, but I do remember it. Um, and I became really interested in sports um, when I was a young child. And so I would watch the Olympics every four years and was fascinated with how um, the Soviet Union and other Soviet bloc countries would send um, delegations and they would dominate certain sports and how much of that was such a big um, a big source of pride for countries to be invested um, in these political how these political um, issues played out in sports. Um, and so when I was applying for colleges, um, that was at the end of, of the, when after the Soviet Union had ended, um, everyone was interested in Russia. Everybody wanted to study it. Everybody wanted to talk about it. And so I um, enrolled at Stanford University where our provost was Dr. Condoleezza Rice. And so not only was she an area expert, you know, if not the area expert in Russia, but she was also a black woman academic. 
And that combination was highly unusual. Um, it also happened that Dr. Rice is from Alabama, which is where my mother was from. And so she, my mother really encouraged me, you know, to go to go to Stanford to meet this woman who was a black female academic studying Russian. And, you know, I kind of thought, oh, but what are the chances that I'll really get to meet the provost of Stanford? Um, and it just so happened that Dr. Rice offered a specialized seminar just for sophomores called the Sophomore College. And the theme was about the post-Soviet transition. And I applied and was accepted. And so I got to spend a lot of time with her, learning about her life, about her um, academic and career path, and doing simulations about Russia, um, studying Russia in depth. And I found it to be just, just fascinating and such a great opportunity to be with someone who had a similar background to me who was doing this work. And that was very formative in my um, understanding and my, my thinking about whether or not I should go to graduate school. Um, so I was fortunate to be able to study abroad. I studied in Paris um, and I studied art history. And eventually I lived in Berlin as an exchange student for a year. And again, that was a really important moment for me in terms of understanding the, the power of international education and um, the role that Russia played in, in shaping Germany, modern Germany as it was. So I met a lot of people who spoke both German and Russian, a lot of East Germans um, who were heavily influenced by Russian culture. And it was, it was really a, a very formative time for me. Um, I also did experience a lot of racism in Germany. And even though I had a great experience um, doing my research there, I came away from it with a bittersweet experience because I lived there and I, I learned the language, but I was never accepted as, as, as someone who could really be part of that culture. And um, that's something that I really want students to, to really take seriously and understand, but not to ever let it hinder them. Um, I have a lot of students um, of color who are very interested and curious about the Russian language. They love studying it. They love learning about Russian history and culture, but um, they or members of their family are concerned about um, whether or not they'll be safe in Russia. And that can hold a student back if they think that they're going to go to a country and experience racism. And so my role at George Mason University as the fellowships director is to advise students on opportunities that will allow them to go to those countries. But as a woman of color, as an academic who's committed to social justice and addressing underrepresentation, I also know that I have a special obligation to help those students understand how to overcome those barriers, how to go to Russia if that's what you're, where your interests lie, and how to how to develop the skills and the and have the resources to respond if if you experience racism or discrimination. And so at George Mason, I am the Boren um, Awards advisor. I send students to Russia every year um, through the Gilman, um, through Fulbright. And I'm thrilled that so many of my students of color in particular are in roles of public service. They're serving in government. They are living abroad. They are doing research. Um, it's, it's so important, as President Biden has said um, recently, that we show our power through the power of our example. And there's no other better example for us to set as a country as having the diversity of America's people be represented abroad. 
it is so much better for us from a foreign policy perspective for people to understand and meet people who are not um, traditionally um, thought of as as Americans. And that is really important for our foreign policy, but also for our students to have those experiences. There are so many students I work with who have really never left the United States or their home state before. And for them to be able to see who they are and understand themselves by leaving this country and being in a different environment, learning how to speak a different language, interacting in a different culture, um, that really helps them to understand the context in which they're from and where they can go. Um, so that's really, um, the crux of my work and why it's so important for me and why Russia in particular is so important for shaping who I am. Um, so with that, I, I'll turn it back to Amaryllis for discussion. Yeah, so um, I do have a couple of questions and audience questions are coming in. Uh, particularly if you're a younger person in the field, feel free to uh, ask, as like my students like to say, ask for some wisdom from these amazingly wise women that we have in the panel today. So I'm going to start with Anna, right? Because I am old enough. I did my first study in Russia was in Leningrad and Leningrad and St. Petersburg are very different places. So what was it like starting off growing up in the Soviet Union, um, having an international upbringing um, and suddenly finding yourself being the policymaker for that region in what used to be the enemy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, um, I think, obviously, I actually quite intentionally avoided working on Russia issues for a long time. Um, and uh, was partially, as I think a lot of people find themselves in government, sometimes precluded from working on them due to security clearance concerns. I had to do three polygraphs before I was permitted to um, enter the government and have a clearance at all, which is usually those these jobs do not require polygraph examinations. But in any event, I think that it turned out to be a huge asset because, of course, I, I have lived in Ukraine and Russia. I understand what people that live in these places think. And that's what going there and living there um, gives you as a policymaker. It's hugely important. So people who are thinking of going into foreign policy, national security, I, I cannot encourage you more to go and live um, and study in the places that you would like to work on, because then you can bring that back. Um, and the language skills, which we still need a great deal more people uh, who speak Russian. Russia is going to continue to be a, an issue and challenge for the United States um, as a, a foreign policy issue and challenge. And we really need people who um, speak the language. And um, so being able to bring those skills in addition to um, my, you know, the experience I had had at the Pentagon to the White House when the Russia-Ukraine war began. Um, was hugely uh, important, and I, but I, but as was being able to see these issues in a nuanced way, thanks to my personal background. And I have to say, um, the issue of race is one. You know, you can see from uh, what the Soviet Union was doing with attracting students like my father to today. There is no one in Russia who doesn't know who George Floyd is, because that is something that um, the Russian propaganda news channels show. 
um, over and over and over again, in part to show, you know, look at the United States. It's a complete mess. It's super racist. It's a disaster. Um, you may not think Russia is doing well, but frankly, no one is. Democracy is no better. So it, it's just this message. And so um, being in the room as a Black American um, at the table with Russian counterparts is hugely important because they do like to actually also present this message to their US counterparts. And it's much harder to do it uh, when I'm there. And it's also just to show like, no, actually um, a person like me, who in Russia, frankly, I would never have been able to work in the Russian government um, at the level that I did in the US. Um, it's um, incredibly important for people who look like you guys to be at the table. Thank you. Um, so I want to remind everybody that throughout the program, you can drop your questions, submit them via email to Canon, that's K-E-N-N-A-N, Canon at WilsonCenter.org, or you can just place them in the box right in your Facebook screen. So I have a question for Lanitra, particularly keeping in mind George Mason University is a public state institution and those institutions are particularly facing a lot of challenges um, with state funding being reduced, particularly for the pandemic. Um, so what specific obstacles do you see um, that you have seen your students face when working to educate them about their international career options? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, it is a difficult financial environment for higher education institutions and George Mason is certainly um, experiencing that. Um, I would say though that that um, in terms of addressing underrepresentation and that by that I mean students who ordinarily um, or traditionally don't participate in international education or study abroad. Those those issues have been consistent even before we are in the situation we're in now. And that is um, one of the, the biggest challenges is that students need to find funding. And um, for a lot of reasons, um, financial aid doesn't always cover all of their, their bills. And um, there's not a lot of programs that universities can run that operate in Russia. So um, many um, students have to use third party providers for those. Um, and sometimes that can be a logistical challenge for financial aid um, on campus. So they don't always wanna talk to each other. And that requires a student to do a lot of different things. They have to interface with the financial aid office. They have to interface with, a, with an external a scholarship provider. And when you add to that, that a student may feel nervous, apprehensive, or self-conscious about just the whole prospect of getting on a plane and going you know, thousands of miles away from home, um, for someone who's 19, 20 years old, um, all of that is really daunting. And so I have students who either um, at the last minute get cold feet and say, you know, oh, I, I, I changed my mind, I don't want to go. Um, sometimes I have students whose families say, you know what, if, if God forbid there's some, you know, news article about something that's happened in Russia or Ukraine or somewhere in Eastern Europe, their family might say, oh, it's really unsafe for you to go. I think you should reconsider. Um, and, um, you know, the, just the, the overwhelming fear that students might have of being an underrepresented minority and going to, you know, a foreign country. So I try to deal with that by forming very deep relationships with the students so that they trust me. 
And they know that I'm not just going to put them on the plane and say goodbye, have a good time, that I'm available if they need me while they're there. So if they get there and their apartment isn't what they thought it was, they can call me. If they get there and they experience racism or somebody calls them a racial epithet and they don't have anybody to call, they know they can call me. So I'm supporting the student throughout the experience to make sure that it's a successful experience. There are so many aspects of being a Black person abroad that most people just don't understand unless you've been through it. And there are so few Black academics in the academy and, and even fewer who have a lot of international experience that um, I feel that it's, it's my obligation to really be a support network to these students. So really helping them go, go through every single step so that they really understand um, how, how they can be successful in this experience is how I've been able to get so many students um, to win fellowships and, and support their study abroad. Yeah, definitely. Um, all incredibly important when you are mentoring the pipeline. Um, so, but uh, Anna, we have a question for you because of course, looking at your background, it is short, but really curious. How has your career trajectory influenced your outlook on Russia? Um, hmm, interesting. I'm not sure exactly what you mean by outlook, but honestly, um, I think one of the reasons to study Russia and look at Russia, right, is because in my, um, you know, I'm 44 and I've seen some pretty substantial change happen in all of, you know, obviously everywhere in Eastern Europe, but in Russia in particular, but for people who are in their 20s, they have only seen Putin be in power. And so this means that um, there is, there's been kind of a stagnation in terms of what is happening in Russia, but it also means that in your guys's lifetime, very soon there will again be some really significant, fascinating changes. And I, I have to say that, especially if, if you've been following at all what's happening in Russia most recently, there is a tremendous amount of energy and agitation and hope for change. Um, despite uh, really violent resistance and, and uh, you know, reactions by the government. So I just think this is a, this is a really interesting time and uh, this is a really interesting time to study and look at Russia because people who are working on it now are going to get to work on some really tremendous, like there is no, no question that you will be part of a huge um, and possibly cataclysmic shift in what's happening in Russia. And that will also impact us and how, um, you know, so much of um, kind of your parents and a generation was shaped by uh, the USSR. Obviously, there are ways in which Russia continues to influence uh, events in the US uh, today, and that will almost certainly continue into the future. Definitely. So I have sort of a quick factoid question for Lanitra, then I have two for both of you, and then we're going to take some audience questions. So again, Kenan at wilsoncenter.org is the email if you want to drop an email question or just put the question in your Facebook screen. So um, Lanitra, the, the quick factoid question is this. Uh, so you're a young uh, undergraduate of color interested in going to 
eastward. It could be Russia or even the post-Soviet area. So what are the top scholarships that you would recommend for them to apply for? Love that question. Um, well, um, there's, there's a couple different options. So for students who are Pell eligible, the State Department offers a special scholarship called the Gilman Scholarship. And that scholarship provides funding for students to study abroad. So you apply for it. If you get it, you get funding and you can apply it to any aspect of your, um, of your studies. Um, there's a special supplement for the Gilman. So the Gilman itself is $5,000 and there's a special critical language supplement that you can get. So if you're studying Russian um, or another Eastern European language that's deemed critical, you can get um, an additional $3,000 to support your study abroad. And that you can do as long as you're um, registered as an undergraduate. So you can do, you can apply for Gilman your first semester of your freshman year or as you're, um, uh, you know, later on in your undergraduate years. Um, another one that I love that I have every, every year I send students um, to on this program is the Boren Awards. So there's a scholarship for undergraduates and there's a fellowship for graduate students. That will also let you go. Um, I don't, I actually don't think you can study in Russia right now. I think you have to go to Ukraine or another um, country where Russian is, is spoken. So I have students who go to Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, um, people who study Russian um, in Ukraine and other places. But if you're interested in, in language learning and language fluency, which Anna mentioned, and I think is, is so critical for us to discuss, the importance of being fluent in the language in order to be able to do the kind of policy work or the kind of research and writing that you need to really immerse yourself in an area study. Um, and so the Bourne is a Department of Defense award that supports long-term study abroad. So you need to be abroad for a minimum of six months or more to be competitive for this award. But if you get it, not only do you get funding to study abroad and, and you get to design your program. I mean, how cool is that? You get to pick where you're gonna go and what you're gonna study. And then when you come back, there's a one-year federal service requirement, which is, you know, they help place you in a federal position um, to, to use those skills. That's um, a fantastic program. And um, the students just do so well um, as individuals, but also they have a great group cohort um, that, that, you know, connects the students. Um, the, the final program that I'll mention, which is a postgraduate program, I, I could literally talk forever about um, scholarships and fellowships, but the final one I'll mention is the Fulbright U.S. Student Program. That's another Department of State program for once you've gotten your bachelor's degree. Um, you can either do research overseas in a foreign country, or you can teach English through their English Teaching Assistantship Program. And there is an ETA program in Russia. Um, there's also ETA programs throughout Eastern, Eastern Europe. Um, and I've sent some fantastic young students of color who have gone on these programs and had a great experience. So um, what I think is important is the scaffolding and that one scholarship builds on another. So if you get a Gilman, you can combine a Gilman with a Boren. Um, or you can get a Gilman, go for a short amount of time, and then apply for a Boren and go back for long longer. And then at the end, after you've done all of that, then you're really competitive to do a Fulbright where you can go for another year after you've graduated. 
Um, and you know that the Fulbright gives you non-competitive eligibility um, for jobs in the federal government when you return. So all of these um, federal awards are designed not only to support your study abroad and your education abroad, but also to give you pathways into public service. Great. I and I just wanted to do a quick shout out also to Project Global Officer. Project Go. If you are a young person of color and you are in ROTC, um, ROTC will pay you to go spend summer studying abroad. Project Global Officer. So if you're in ROTC and watching and you've never heard of this, go talk with your commanding officer in your battalion. And I have sent multiple students from ROTC at Howard on Project Go and they have all loved the program. Yes, Anna. No, I was just going to say there's also all these little there. I don't not like the Atlantic Bridge Young Leaders Program. There's all these like little fellowships that aren't necessarily money, but that will pay for you to do like a two week thing with your peers elsewhere. And then you start building a network from these. And I'm sure Lenitra, you know all about these. But, you know, I did like a handful of these and they've been incredible connections that have then benefited me my entire career. Um, so there's, there are just so many that um, you should not get discouraged if you know, one or two don't apply to you because there's literally dozens, probably hundreds of these things. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Anna, because um, those are not as well known as the bigger fellowships. But as you said, they um, connect you with a network of people who then follow you, you know, for the rest of your career. So not only do you get that exchange experience, but you also get that professional development experience. And I, I did a couple of professional development exchanges. I did one through the State Department called Young Turkey, Young America. Um, and it was fantastic in terms of creating friendships. And 10 years after I did it, many of the people that were in that program um, together have gone on to be you know, senior members of, of the administration. So there's the actual language learning piece of it and this, and this experience of being immersed abroad, that's important. But then there's also connecting with like-minded colleagues through these experiences that is just as important. Okay, so we have questions rolling in. So I'm gonna, so short sort of like the parent, pers the student perspective, parent perspective, and then we're gonna get to our audience questions. So the student question, why should students not be afraid of studying in Russia or the region? I know, and short, right? That's yes, the challenge. Well, so um, that's for both of you, yeah. Um, I, you know, I spent many years living in Russia and I go, I go back to Russia every year, except, you know, this year. Um, but I have to say, look, the, it, it is true that in Russia, you can never be sort of invisible. <laughs> you are noticeable and people, um, you know, there's a, an awareness of you. But I also think that in, like, we think of... Uh, Racism means that people have a preconceived notion of what you're going to be like and they judge you on the basis of that. Um, I don't know that what most Russians um, who respond to you in a different way, um, they don't have a preconceived notion necessarily, they are just curious because you are different from them and people have a natural uh, uh, you know, tendency to not you know, be curious about things that are new to them and don't understand. So mostly people are not cruel, they're not trying to hurt you. So it takes getting used to, but it's not um, you know, negative. Uh, of course, there is also that aspect, but I have to say that things have changed so much, especially in the big cities. In Moscow, you, you don't really tend to feel uh, that 
you know that different it 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 will probably feel much like any other uh, you know big city anywhere in the world people have people are focused on their own issues and so um and just statistically these places have gotten safer so I think right now you have to be vigilant and you should, you know, like anytime you're in a new place, you will have to be more careful and you, you will have to be cautious. But I think that there isn't uh, being, there is not, not really something to, to be afraid of um, or like more afraid than you would be anywhere. Uh, Lenitra, you, you sent students who are un unfamiliar with these countries uh, there. So I think you may have an even better perspective. Um, no, well, yeah, I, I would echo a lot of what, what you said, Anna, and, and one thing I'll say is that um, one of the greatest tragedies of racism here in the United States is that it, it, the, the limiting view that it imposes on people of color, that it makes them feel as though the U.S. experience is the only experience and the best experience, like we were talking about earlier. And unless you get out of this country and you see how other people live, you may not agree with how they live. You, it, it may not be for you in the long run, but once you see that there are other ways of, of people relating to you as a black person, that's incredibly liberating. And so there are very few places where I will tell a student that they absolutely should not go. So I'm trying in my advising work to really help students prepare themselves um, to have a good experience. And the first aspect of that is that anytime you leave a place that you're familiar and you go overseas into another environment, you are gonna be uncomfortable. Discomfort is part of the process. And you have to develop strategies for, for handling that discomfort. Um, I also want students to understand um, the importance of language fluency and how and that process of, you know, you first arrive and even if you've studied Russian for years in the United States, when you get on the ground, it's going to be different. It's there's going to be slang and terminology that people are using that you're not going to understand. So there's going to be a learning curve at first. But there's this interesting middle point that happens for students of color. Um, when they first get there, they're struggling to learn the language, they're struggling to get um, their their bearings. But then they become acclimated. They start understanding the language, they can converse. And that's actually the point when they understand more of what people are saying. So they can pick up more um, when people are saying negative things about them. And that's a, a, a very specific type of advising that I have to do is like once a student can pick up what a racial epithet is, and then they have to try to, to try to process that. That once they work through that in that final period when they've hopefully gotten close to fluency, they also have more tools because they've also understood the culture better. They have the tools to respond. So not only do they hear what's going on and they can speak um, um, to other people, but they can actually develop responses and 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 protect themselves and and respond in that language. So I think that. Um, Russia, you know, and 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 Eastern Europe, they're all important places for people to study. I would never tell a student not to go. And um, I generally sit with students extensively to prepare them so that they have all of the tools that they need to be successful with the understanding that success does not mean a flawless experience that where you never make a language mistake, that you never offend anyone, that you never have any problems. It's how do you become resilient enough to navigate all of those issues? 
and sort of also being an instructor, I do have to say, there's a lot more of us now. Um, when I was coming up, like, good luck, it took about 20 years before I met another Puerto Rican in the Russian area studies field. Um, but now there's a lot more of us. And I can tell you right now, my students do get to talk with people of color that have been there before so that they can sort of get what's the ground truth if you're a person of scholar there. So that was the student point of view now for the sort of the parent focused question. And then we're going to move to the audience questions. Again, you can drop your questions at Kenan at WilsonCenter.org or right at the Facebook page. Um, so particularly thinking about Howard, right, um, which this year is over 60% female and I get my male students in there. Right, there's a big pressure on our students of color, particularly when you're looking at first generation student of color to choose the field with return on investment, right? Where it's easy to say, hi, I'm gonna have a really good paycheck and a 401k when I'm done. Um, Anna, you did mention you had to take a pay cut to join the Obama administration. So how do I sort of convince my students that this is a worthwhile sort of route to take, um, even if you wanna go straight to the Facebook paycheck first? So there we go. Uh, well, first of all, um, if you want to wake up every morning being thrilled to go to work, um, that is a privilege I think very few people get. And um, as much, you know, I think that, you know, you can certainly enjoy being a corporate lawyer also, but I think fewer people wake up in the morning being really thrilled to go to work every single day um, in those roles. So I think that it's, and it's, I, you know, I should say that, you know, the, those jobs, the, the jobs in government still compensate you fairly well compared to lots of other careers. And you have, um, you know, if you stay in government, you have a pension and you have all of these protections. Um, you have great health insurance, things that you may not get uh, these days from too many other careers. So, and plus, if you do choose to not stay in government forever and go into the corporate world, that experience is incredibly valuable. You know, obviously it's my government experience that allowed me to um, take this job at Facebook and continues to allow me to be sought after um, by other companies because essentially every company is global now. People want to um, hire people who understand how things work in other countries um, and who can relate to, uh, you know, a more global mindset. So it will, um, it, government service is going to be an asset to you, uh, whether you choose to stay in government or whether you choose to go into another field. I'll just add too that um, I have less of a problem with this particular issue at a place like George Mason because so many students come to Mason really interested in a federal career or working in government. But I do still, I do still encounter it. Um, and that's a really hard one to counteract if someone's worked so hard and their whole family is working to send this person to college. And so it's not just about this person getting a degree, it's about supporting a whole community um, with that person. And so, yes, they want to see that if you get this um, opportunity, um, that there's going to be a payoff at some point. And, you know, it's, it, you tend to see this a lot with, with PhDs, you know, it's hard to say to somebody, to your family, I'm going to go get a PhD and it's going to take me 10 years to study 
Slavic studies and I'm going to get a $12,000 a year stipend, you know, that's a long investment for, you know, people who are working to support you. But as Anna said, these um, these are long and and windy paths and also, you know, to mix the metaphors of revolving door. So you the language fluency is going to help you um, in the private sector. And it's very common for people to go from the private sector to the public sector and back and forth, depending on the opportunity, depending on the need. And so it it's it's you want to caution people not to think about that starting salary coming right out of college that's for most people it's going to be low but if you can get your foot in the door and get into opportunities that are going to give you the skills that you need and put you in rooms where you meet people who can take you places then very soon you'll see that you're making connections with people who can help you move around and and move up so um, that's a that's a tricky one to navigate just because you have to counsel the student and and give them what they need, you know, to be able to 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 follow their career path of choice, but also recognizing that there's probably a larger network of people who who also um, are supporting this person. Okay, so we now have a few really cool questions from uh, from our audience. Uh, thank you very much. So, uh, sort of, okay, I'll start with the first one. Um, and this one's from the Facebook post. My name is Ayela. I hope I pronounced that right. My apologies if I did not pronounce it right. Um, as a black woman, and this one's for Anna, right? How was your expertise in Russian foreign policy formulation welcomed in Russia? Um, you know, I think, Again, I have to say that uh, in general, pe people have um, they they have an adjustment sort of like periods to you as someone who is a senior person in government um, uh, or you know and uh, someone working on national security or in these issues. But I do think again that I felt um, a tremendous opportunity being at the table on these policy issues with Russians who, you know, um, I, call, I call it uh, the talking dog syndrome sometimes with Russians where I start speaking a fluent accentless Russian with them and it takes them a minute because they don't really understand what's going on. They're like, for some reason I can understand what you're saying, but I, but I don't know why. It's like, well, because I'm speaking Russian with you. So, um, so you know, there is that sometimes, sometimes that adjustment period, but again, um, being able to be there and to represent the U.S. government on these issues um, and show that someone like me um, is trusted uh, on these issues and is, you know, there at a senior level, I think is hugely helpful. And in some ways, I think that, you know, my Russian colleagues um, believe often that the United States pays lip service to racial equality, but it is fake um, because they see a completely different story, of course, of the way that the U.S., um, the Russian propaganda shows them the U.S. feeds Black people. Um, so I've always felt like it was a, a huge privilege and um, kind of an amazing position to be in, to be on that side of the table um, talking about these issues. Okay, so um, I love the next question, sort of close to my heart. So we have a question from the Facebook uh, chat. My name is Patrick. What are your thoughts on starting late in your career 
meaning as a non-academic black male professional in the late 40s attempting to work in public service on Russia. I'm, I'm going to take the little stab here. What I always tell my students first is just show up, right? There are so many opportunities out there that if you don't just show. So that's sort of like my teacher disclaimer. I love that question. So um, sort of Lanitra Nana, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's ever too late to start a public service career. I think that um, there's always a need and the federal government is looking to fill those needs with people who have the expertise. And so even if you have had other careers or, or have been working in other areas and, and have an interest, um, you know, the, the Washington DC area is filled with opportunities for you to learn languages, meet people who are doing policy work, meet people who are interested in Eastern Europe and Russia and Slavic studies. Um, I, I think that it's really, um, it's, it's really your career to shape. I don't think that you can enter public service too late. I completely agree with that. And I actually think depending on what your field is, there are all kinds of like super interesting exchanges and fellowships for people who already have a career um, to go, uh, you know, study or even do one of these kind of shorter term fellowships that I talked about um, to help build out that network. Also, you know, the Foreign Service, there's no limitation to when you when you can enter it. And I'd have to say as a um, as a person of color, I was saying this, that I've never really felt like it was a huge advantage to me to be a person of color in this space before. I actually genuinely feel like it is right now. Um, I think that there is a huge push to get more people of color into public service, particularly in foreign policy and national security, where there are not you know, too many of us. And so I do think that it, it is actually an advantage right now. Um, so, and I don't think we're going back to a place where you know, it wasn't. Um, so, I would just, if that's something that you're interested in, passionate about, absolutely would encourage it. All right. So, and Lanitra, he had a little bit of a follow up. So, like, quick, like, where to start? One place to start. If you can recommend one place to start for him. Um, I think I would know, would want to know as an advisor whether there are any, whether he has any um, foreign language skills at all. And um, if, if, we're talking about Russia going into Russian studies or Slavic studies. Um, if you don't speak Russian, then, you know, Rosetta Stone and, you know, take, start taking Russian lessons. Um, if you already do speak Russian, then I would, um, you know, really dive into, you know, the Russia, Russia policy community and um, start talking to people. And you've actually taken the first step by attending a webinar like this, where you're, you know, learning about different opportunities and, and seeing um, who the different people are who are in the field. So you're off to a good start. And then it's just a question of, you know, making those connections and studying the language. Great. Um, we have a little bit of a policy question. So uh, since we have Anna here, it's such a pleasure um, when you have somebody so experienced uh, to answer these kinds of questions. Uh, so for Anna, in the 2016 election, Russia purposefully stoked racial tensions through their online propaganda efforts, particularly leveraging social media platforms such as Twitter and Facebook. Um, as someone working on tech content issues, can you talk about ways in which social media platforms and online forums can better combat disinformation and moderate 
hate speech? Sure. I mean, I do think that there is, we're living a kind of, in terms of what tech platforms do today, we're living in a completely different world than we lived in in 2016. Um, I know that uh, there, you, you know, the, the, the policy team at Facebook is now thousands of people, um, where it was probably maybe a hundred or two other people uh, in 2016. I'm not sure of the exact number because I wasn't there, but I know that it's grown exponentially. And not just Facebook, there are, there are lots of um, other tech companies that didn't have a policy team at all. Uh, that now recognize that uh, you know that any of one of these platforms, platforms you wouldn't even think of like Etsy, can be exploited, um, or you know can have hateful content, or you know all, all kinds of problematic issues. But everyone is aware of that now, and they're at working really hard to combat that. So they have um, significant additional capabilities. Of course, the threat continues to evolve. And it's a huge challenge to continue to stay ahead of that threat. And I do think that this is a place where governments um, and com tech companies should be working together. That's part of what um, my current role is. But also, you know, te tech literacy uh, for populations is hugely important. There are countries like Sweden that devote enormous resources to ensure that populations are tech savvy so that as users um, can also be a part of the solution in terms of spotting and addressing um, disinformation, propaganda. Um, so I, I just think, you know, this is going to be a huge, continue to be a huge challenge, but there is a there is complete awareness of the challenge now and a huge amount of effort to address it. So I feel, I feel optimistic, um, genuinely optimistic about where things are going. Great. So um, we have a great question for uh, both of you to contemplate here. Um, what do you say to students of color who feel pressure from their community serving from Russian Eurasian Studies community to ask why they're in the field or ask them why they're not studying something closer to their culture? Um, so that's the actual question and I'll throw in. Yeah, that could have been my mom, right? I'm Puerto Rican. And every now and then when I say I'm gonna go travel to do research, she's like, why didn't you know, why didn't you stick with Puerto Rican studies? You know, you could be researching in San Juan and your kids could be staying with your aunt and I could be there, you know? Instead, you're spending January in Leningrad. So uh, yeah, so what do you say to students of color who feel the pressure? Uh, when they're asked why they're not studying something closer to their culture, particularly when we know that there are certain fields that have sort of become the the, the warm and fuzzy bubbles, like Africana studies, border studies, Chicano studies. Uh, in that case, why Russia? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that January in St. Petersburg is glorious. <laughs> when all the rivers freeze and you can you know, walk around and look at the city. Um, one of the most beautiful cities on earth, by the way, I highly recommend that any, everyone visit it before they die. It's really just a spectacular. But I mean, I think part of it is, um, look, we need more Russia experts desperately. And so I do think that there is something to the idea that um, by, by studying something where there's a greater need, um, you have a greater chance of you know, rising to the ranks and going to work on these issues at a super senior levels, uh, level and you know, just making a name for yourself in a way you might not, studying something where there are already 
tons and tons of people um, in this subject matter, even if it's easier because there are so many people around you to learn from. I do think that um, there, there are advantages to going to a field where there are not as many people um, studying it, and particularly where this is such an important topic. It's so critically important um, to US foreign policy, and there is absolutely no question that there will continue to be a need um, for decades to come. I would, I would definitely second that. Um, the other thing I'll say is that an important part for me in, in the racial justice movement is supporting intellectual curiosity. That it shouldn't just be people who are wealthy and who come from storied families who have the ability to pursue whatever they're interested in. And so it's important for students to follow their intellectual curiosities and Emeralis, I'm sure you, you can you can also talk about this so if you're not interested in studying border studies but you're fascinated by Russian the Russian language that is what you should pursue that's what you should study. Um, it's it's a very hard and lonely life to study something that that doesn't interest you that you don't like um, and so I really spend a lot of time with younger students um, having them think about you know what what's interesting to you what do you want to do and it's very difficult to make that distinction when you enter college between who who you are and who your family is or who your parents want you to be and that's part of the discovery process in higher education and so it's it, to me, it's critical that students follow the, those passions and those intellectual curiosities so that they can truly achieve fluency of language so that they can really become um, um, subject area experts where they have a depth of expertise. Um, you only get to those ranks if you're really and truly curious and if you can ask really good questions. So if that happens to be that you are interested in Slavic studies or Russia, then you know you you should you should pursue that. And parents and and family members don't always understand what that looks like at the beginning because they're frightened. If no one else in your family has studied this area, they they don't know what 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 you're going into. But that's where you have to you build that trust that you're going to achieve um, a goal um, and add an important perspective to a field and a region that so desperately needs fresh voices and fresh perspectives. Great, and this really nicely segues into our last question that we have right now, which is how do you see the short and long-term future of racial diversity in the public sector and federal workforce, given new initiatives that President Biden has put forth? Um, again, I would say that I, I, I do feel very optimistic about what is happening today. I think that there's a, a very concerted effort to identify and include um, people of color across the federal government. Um, there's an infrastructure that the administration has built um, I know because I, you know, um, 
in this kind of latest round of government hiring um, have been reached out to by all kinds of organization as someone who you know has a background in this field. Um, so I think that they're working really hard to make sure that they identify um, experienced people, but also young people who are just entering this field to make sure they are included as well. So, um, you know, I think there's still obviously a lot of work to do, but the machinery to ensure this kind of inclusion is really being built out right now in a way that I think will be um, more durable and not just kind of a, you know, a passing phase. Absolutely. And, and, you know, as Anna said, you know, at the beginning, um, this is such an exciting time to be in public service and for young people to feel inspired to to step up and join the ranks of public service and having mentors and, and role models so that you can see a pathway for yourself um, is very important. Um, for me, that was seeing someone like Dr. Rice in, in her position as, as a provost and as a Russia expert. And some of you on this call and who watch this later will see that, that Anna spoke very candidly that she didn't take a straight path. It was not a path that was cleared for her. She had to make it for herself. And that none of these paths, no matter who you see sitting up front, um, no one had an easy route. There are always challenges and obstacles that people have to overcome. So don't think that just getting a, into a career of public service is going to be, you know, an easy road. It's 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 going to be challenging. There are big questions that we're tackling and trying to solve in, through government, but that doesn't make it any less fulfilling or interesting. And you know, when I look back on my time as as a public Servant as a as a state employee of George Mason University, and I see all of these wonderful students who are working in the State Department and who are working in intelligence, and who are Foreign Service officers. And I think, wow, you know, I remember when that student was a freshman and came to see me and had no idea what they're what they're doing, and now they're you know they're advising someone um, in a federal agency. And it just it makes me feel very proud of of being in the role that I am and and to see how these students are going to be the next generation of mentors and role models. So I hope that everyone here feels empowered and energized about the prospect of serving in government and and to understand that clear message from the Biden administration that diversity, equity and inclusion are important and that you, you do belong in these careers. So that covers all the questions that we have right now. Um, I want to take a moment and thank the Cannon Institute for hosting a program like this. This is a very important kind of program, not just because of the amazing experience that the speakers have, but also it does show that the diversity in the field, it's, it's growing. And this is a way that allows us to connect with each other in a way that was not possible before, um, which of course leads me also to point out, do check out the Cannon Institute website because they have some fascinating Black History Month programming going on. Uh, and we are incredibly grateful for uh, their taking on this complicated and difficult conversations. So I just wanted to just give Anna Lanitra a moment if they wanted to just share one last piece of knowledge before we officially close the event. Um, 
Well, I just wanted to reiterate that this is a field that offers, I think, some sort of uh, some advantages uh, that you may not be able to get anywhere else. Uh, I, I have you, you will just meet people and get to have experiences that I'm not sure that there is any other field that gives you. Um, I have an incredible network of friends um, all over the world. And as a result, um, you know, I've gotten to stay with them, um, experience all kinds of countries around the world through their eyes, you know, experience new books, new, new bits of culture that I wouldn't otherwise get. It's just a really um, fulfilling thing to have done that uh, enriches your entire life, not just your career. So uh, it's something I would really encourage exploring. And it, it, again, like you can give yourself permission to change your mind. You don't have to commit to this path forever, um, but I don't know anyone who's ever regretted committing some time to it. And I would just say that um... And most of my students have, have have said that they've never regretted um, studying abroad and having those those important experiences overseas. So if any any way you can do it, you should even if it's just a week, if it's a professional exchange, if it's a year, um, you should take advantage of that. It will change your life in ways that are unexpected. It will put you in places that you never predicted. It will help you meet people who will become your lifelong friends. And so the, the power of international education and mutual exchange is, is very strong. And it's, it's really something that is incumbent upon us to make sure is accessible to anyone who wants to participate. So thank you so much for attending our talk today. Thank you, Anna and Lenitra, for sharing your uh, wisdom with our audience. And we look forward to seeing you in future Kinan events, both online and when we come back to face-to-face. -to -face. Thank you very much.